Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. And Willow Walsh, and you're listening to... Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Organic Juice Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsjuicecafe.com. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today we bring you three stories from the Welcome Project's Invisible Project Initiative. So listen up. To give you a rundown of things, we'll play three stories all together today, and we'll pause in between to discuss the storyteller's experience. And today, um, we're going to bring you a story from The Invisible Project. So we thought we would actually give you a little bit of context. Um, The Invisible Project is just one of um, three main initiatives at The Welcome Project, and um, it's one that in 2015... Um, we, Liz Werfel, who's the co-director of the Welcome Project with myself, we were approached by um, several nonprofits in the community, the Porter County Coalition for Affordable Housing, Housing Opportunities, Gabriel's Horn, and Dayspring Women's Center. They were really interested in um, us working with some of their clients to collect stories on their experiences of homelessness in Porter County. Some of those um, organizations, those nonprofits are going to come up in our story today. So um, Willow, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about them? Yeah, sure thing. So Housing Opportunities is a nonprofit that resolves and prevents homelessness for adults, children, and seniors in Porter and LaPorte counties. Gabriel's Horn helps homeless women and children rebuild their lives and independence with dignity by providing shelter, education, counseling, and referrals to community connections. Dayspring's Women's Center is a day center in Valparaiso serving women who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless by providing education, counseling, and resources. Great. So um, when, when we were approached by the, um, the nonprofits, uh, we started um, beginning to imagine what would be the best way to get these stories across. Is there some other means by which the community could engage the stories of the clients um, besides our, our regular website? So the Porter County Museum here in town also got interested, and we began to imagine what um, a mobile exhibit might look like. That involved actually another Valparaiso faculty member in the graduate program whose students in the graphic design course um, created some of the infographics that eventually went up into a mobile exhibit that began first at Porter County uh, Museum, but then traveled, I think it was to over 20 sites um, throughout throughout the county. The exhibit itself is no longer up, but all of the stories um, are still on our website. And so if you find yourself um, interested in this storyteller or if you want to hear more about experiences of homelessness in our county, you can go to our website and look at either the category of Invisible Project or the tag, and you'll be brought to a number of um, our different storytellers. And I think it's really important and powerful because um, I know for me that a lot of my preconceptions, prejudices, assumptions about what homelessness looked like were totally transformed and changed by by um, interviewing these clients. So I hope that you'll get a taste of that today as well. Our first storyteller today talks about her experience of growing up in Northwest Indiana, becoming a caretaker, battling the loss of her mom and her home. 
This is We Beat Statistics. I um, lost my mom when I was 17, and my brother was 14. When we were living in Hammond, she died of cancer. We didn't have a lot of family. We were losing the house that my mom lived in. My mom's husband walked out on us. My brother's dad was a drug addict and couldn't do much for us. Before I turned 18, I went to legal aid, and they were able to help me as long as my brother's dad was willing to sign over his rights. And he was, and I took custody of my brother when I turned 18. And um, we had got some life insurance from my mom in order to get a place, pay the first year's rent, and get him in school and get the furniture and clothes that he needed. Uh, it was really hard. We didn't have nobody else. I mean, our situation wasn't that great in the first place, considering my mom was an alcoholic and a drug addict. Um, but um, when somebody looked at me and said I wasn't going to get custody of my brother, I had to. I had to get custody of him. I didn't want to lose my mom and my brother at the same time. It was a lot to take care of. He was a, he was a handful, especially after losing your mom. That's a traumatic stage to go through. And I didn't, I understood because I lost her too, but he took it so much harder than I did that I just, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my hands around it and I couldn't deal with it because I have my own emotional problems. And I'm like, how am I going to deal with your emotional problems? When I have my own, I don't know what to do. And he didn't talk about it. He still does not talk about it to this day. Um, I had him for a year and he didn't listen to me so well. I had to put him on probation because he had 80 truancies in school. It was just like two teenagers living with each other and fighting all the time. So he moved in with his friend's mom and he graduated on honors. But I felt hurt, but I was okay because I knew where he was going, he was gonna be okay. I'm very proud of him and I think my mom would be too. He told me one time, he's like, I think it was better off that mom died. I was like, why would you say that for? And he was like, because it made us better people. He was like, if we would have stayed with my mom, our mom, then the situation might not have played out the same. She taught us everything not to do. That's the way we look at it. She, she loved us, but she didn't love herself enough to take care of us the right way like she should have. So she taught us what not to do. And I think we beat statistics pretty well. Um, Willow, uh, what stands out to you in the details of um, this person's story? Yeah, so I think what stands out to me is like all of these things that she has to take on, like as a 17-year-old, right? Like there's so many things that she does before yeah. she's even 18. And I'm just thinking about like my responsibility level at 17. <laughs> like I can't imagine like taking all these things that she says like, you know, so her mom died, like this incredible grief that yeah. she and her family are experiencing. And then on top of that, it's like you can't even stay in this this home that you were in. And so she doesn't know where she's going to go. Her mom's husband walked out on them. And it's like her brother's dad was a drug addict, she says, and couldn't do much for them. And then she had to go to legal aid and try to find help and then had to, like, negotiate this process of, like, her brother's dad signing over his rights so she could take custody. And, like, all of this happened before she was even 18. So like, she just, there's so much on her plate during that time. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like not even being able to deal with that grief, you know, full, full focus, but also having to balance all of, you know, yeah. the fallout from that. Yeah, I, I resist making changes in my life that involve any kind of like bureaucracy or paperwork. <laughs> just like, I can't imagine like, you just lose your mom, and then you have to figure all of that stuff out like who is telling her to even go to legal aid like I don't that just would have been 
a lot to navigate. And then I can't also imagine taking on care, like being a parent to a sibling, like, cause the, you know, you're used to being co-equals, I guess, for lack of a better word. And then to suddenly have to be the one who's put in a position of responsibility. So you feel like you actually have to do more than just be a sibling. You actually have to keep them in line and make sure they like, in this case, go to school and stuff like that. Um, can you tell what she cares about and values based on how she talks about going through this experience? Well, it seems like family is really important yeah. to her. Like, she, like one person said, they, they looked at her and said that she wasn't going to get custody of her brother. And she was like, I had to get custody of him. And I think that's like, that's so powerful because it, it, it seemed like we can kind of infer from her story. It's like her family support system. It didn't feel very strong, like maybe other than her mom, like as soon as her mom was gone, it's like the other people in her life, like her brother's dad, like they weren't there to, yeah. to help out. But she has this really strong sense of like connection to her brother and like really wanting to, to stay with him because she says like at one point, like I, I just lost my mom. I wasn't going to lose my brother too. Like, yeah. And so she was willing to kind of put all of this on her plate. Yeah, I feel like she also um, really cares about making sure that they're going to be okay. You mm -hmm. know, like, so she values a certain, want, wanting to provide a certain kind of stability um, for her brother as well. And, and I'm assuming for herself, too. Yeah. Yeah, because she even says, like, this, I mean, this is like bananas to me that she says this, like the, the perspective that she has, because as she's talking about her brother, she's like, he was a handful, you know, especially after losing your mom, that's a traumatic stage to go through. And she recognizes she's like, yeah, I lost her too. But like that she's viewing it through through her brother's loss. Like, look at what he's going through right now. It's like, you know, this is such like a like a traumatic time for him. And it's so interesting because you mentioned like they were, you know, before she had to take on this parental role, right? They were like co-equals, right? Yeah. So like for her to like, you know, fully embody that shift of like becoming a parent and then like really feeling for her brother and like what he's going through. And she's like, well, yeah, sure. I'm going through that too. But, but he, he's going through that. You know, he was 14 at the time, but you know, they're both kids. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about like putting your own loss to the side and experiencing it through someone else because you're seeing the impact it's having on them. I was curious um, if we, like, obviously she doesn't tell us this, but I wondered why the brother didn't talk about it and still does not talk about it to this day. Like, did you have any reaction to that or thoughts about why someone might hold something in yeah, no, I, I mean, actually, that was something that I had glazed over <laughs> the first time I heard this story, because that felt that felt really consistent for me, like, right, like, if you're not gonna, like, processing, like, grief to that extent of, like, losing a parent, like, that is such a, a, a deep grief, like, it's like, it's like, like, if you've never lost somebody that close, it's so painful. Mm. And so if, if you're not in, like, the right state, to to kind of take on that pain and and face it and be able to like process it like i think that's something that just gets like compartmentalized like right like i 
I can't deal with this, like this is too much to deal with, and it just goes into this other compartment in your brain <laughs> for you not to, to yeah. worry about it. Because I think especially it's like, maybe it would have been more helpful if they had a family support system there with them. You know, maybe it would have been helpful if there were other people around that that helped, you know, them process this grief. But it's like, it's like grief wasn't even their biggest hurdle, right? And like, that's, that's insane. Like they lost their mom and that's not even like the biggest challenge that they're dealing with. Like they're trying to find a place to live. So I think that they've already been in this experience where they, they have to stay in the present and think about next steps. And it's hard to like process what's already happened up until that point. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense to me. I don't know, what did you think about it? Well, I think that for sure. And I also wonder about possible stigma. Like if, if he's not wanting other people to know what's happening to them because it might, you know, project poorly on them or maybe even project poorly on their their mom um if some of her um addiction played into the death i guess we don't really learn how her mom oh no she died of cancer so um it doesn't necessarily look like it's related to her addictions but um yeah i mean the fact that he had 80 truancies in school and she doesn't exactly tell us like the time period that that would have happened in but even if it was over the course of a year, that's huge. Um, and so I'm thinking like if you're avoiding school, some of that could be like unprocessed trauma, like is does what seems worthwhile in the loss of a, of, of a family member and the loss of a mother. Um, but I also just am curious about that stigma um, and, and whether there was some concern on his part that like, if I talk about this with other people, they're going to judge me or they're going to put me in a box or they're going to make me smaller than I really am. Um, but, you know, we don't we don't know for sure. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think like, well, after that, too, she says, like, so I think on one hand, it's like their situation, right, that like they're not really sharing with others. And that might be the reason they're not sharing with others. But I think, too, it's like it feels very like we don't get a sense of like they're like the the others that are in their lives if there is anybody else like it feels very inward like the both of them are kind of through this yeah and so i wonder like she also notes she's like well he didn't talk about it and i wonder if like that's with her too and she would have also been going through that you know that loss and so it's like they're not even really turning towards each other even though they're kind of the only people they have at this point and and i also wonder like she also mentions like they're just two teenagers living together and fighting all the time. <laughs> and like, and so it's like they're, they're balancing this grief and then they're also balancing like, you know, being in the same situation as one another and like having this. Yeah, I wonder if in part like what he wasn't willing to talk about was like their relationship more than the mother passing away or maybe it's all of a piece, right? But like, he just doesn't want to process like what happened to the two of them in that period of time before he decides to move in with his friend's mom. And I just, I was that line where she says, I felt hurt, but I was okay. And the way she says it in her voice, like it takes her a while to say, okay, you know, um, I, so that really touched me. And I, I wondered if like, what do you think she feels hurt about? Like, what is she referencing? Is it the moving in with his friend's mom, which means leaving her? Does it have something to do with 
the fact that he succeeded without her. She says he graduated in honors. So does she wish that that was something he could have done with her support? I think so. Like, that's that's a little bit of the sense that I get. Like, I mean, it could it could go either way. But I think there is this idea that he's going to, you know, someone else's mom. And he, is, he's, he got honors through that. And so it seems that he turned out, you know, to do a lot better once he had left her. And I think it might be, like, I could understand why that would be hard for her. Because it seems like, like we already said, like, she's balancing all of these different elements in her life. Like, you know, where she's going to live, like, taking care of her brother. So it feels like she's, like, expand, like, to the max here. Like, she is maxed out. She's doing as much as she possibly can in balancing all of these different things. And it seems like even at, you know, operating at 100% there, that wasn't even enough yeah. to, like, help him thrive. Well, we don't know. Like, he could have gotten honors with her. We That's don't know. That's true. But, <laughs> like, but the sense there is that, like, he didn't do this with me, even though it's, like, yeah. it felt like she was trying so hard. Yeah. I wonder, oh, I should remind listeners that um, you're listening to WVLP. This is Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh, and we're with The Welcome Project, and this is Listen Up Radio. Um, and today we're talking about <clears throat> a storyteller's experience of homelessness, um, do you think that by the end of this story, the storyteller ended up agreeing with her brother that it was better off that mom died? I was wondering about that because I don't think we necessarily know because she doesn't give us any inkling, right? She's just like, her brother said, I think it was better off that mom died. And she was like, why would you say that? And he said, because it made us better people. And so I wonder, like, I... I don't know, because I, the toll on her was so much greater, right? Like, she had to take on a lot of those responsibilities. And it's, and it's interesting to me that her brother would be the one to say that. Well, I guess maybe not. But he didn't, I guess he didn't have to take on, like, the brunt of, like, figuring things out after that point. So, Although he is the one that she thought to get harder than she did. That's so true. yeah. It is interesting. I, I know, I totally interrupted you, but... Um, <laughs> Like, I wonder if it's one of those things that you, in retrospect, say to help with the trauma. You know, it made us better people. But I don't know. I worry a little bit because it feels like a a kind of judgment of the mom. You know, if we would have stayed with her, our situation might not have played out the same. But I don't know. That's not it's I guess it's not for me to (laughs) know what's good for you. But maybe because the storyteller does um, so treasure family, um, I would think that would be hard. I, th- I would think that would be hard to hear. I think there's something in the way that she says, our storyteller says she loved us, but she didn't love herself enough to take care of us the right way. I think that sounds to me like how she's making peace with that, what her brother said. So it's like I I feel like in one sense she agrees with him you know we beat the statistics but on the other hand I think she's more cautious like she wants to recognize actually our mom really did love us but I just think that's so wise she didn't love herself enough to know how to take care of us that distinction seems like an incredible like something you learn far older than, yeah. you know, yeah. when you're, I mean, I don't know, um, you know, how old she was when we interviewed her for this story, but that seemed really, really a powerful moment in this story for me. 
Yeah, what do you think she means by we beat statistics pretty well? Yeah, I was guessing that, like, we could look up, you know, like, if you are born in poverty or if you're born to parents who suffer addictions, like, there's a kind of ceiling, you know, like, that you'll end up also in that same cycle. And so I think that, in part, she's indicating how they didn't fall into you know, like that ceiling. They didn't get trapped by the cycle of, of poverty or addiction. But I actually think this might be a good time to go into the next part of her story <clears throat> because the, the last two parts of her story, I think, will help us better understand what it means for her to beat the statistics. Because in one sense, it looks like um, she does fall prey to the pattern because she herself ends up homeless, and we're about to hear about that. So I think as we hear her story through the rest of our time together today, we might be able to say more about that. So this is the second part of her story could have handled different. I would describe homelessness by, it can mean you are living in the streets, you don't have anywhere to go, or you're living from house to house to house and you don't know when somebody is going to kick you out, you don't know when you might end up on the streets. When you go from couch to couch or house to house, you have no idea when that's going to be the last person. If there's ever going to be any hope that you're going to find your own place or find a job that's going to pay you enough money to get your own place, you just, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, that was my family who was putting me into homeless shelters. It was after, um, I uh, took custody of my brother. We had our own place, but we lost it. My brother moved out, and then I went um, to stay with a friend, and I found out I was pregnant. And then that friend's mom kicked me out for no reason. I was six months pregnant when she put me out. She, I lived with her after my mom died, before we had got our own place. And I had got a little bit of life insurance from my mother after she died. Um, and I was able to give her a lot of money at that time. So then when I had moved out and found my own place and um, we ran out of money, I moved back in with her and we didn't have the money no more. And so I was still providing food and cleaning up. It wasn't enough. Then I moved in with my son's father and his sister and then she left to move to another state. So then I ended up moving in with my aunt, and this is all after I had Jaden. And we lived with her, and then she put me out, and she put me in a homeless shelter. She thought if I lived in a homeless shelter that it would help me get on my feet faster than me living with her. So that was her um, opinion of it. And not saying it didn't work, but the way she approached it, because she took my stuff and she sold it or took it somewhere else and gave it to other people. So I was pretty upset. And it was my son's stuff too, like his walkers, his swings, all of that stuff, she took it and she just got rid of it because I couldn't come and get it because we were in a homeless shelter. So I think she could have handled that a little bit different. So how is the storyteller defining homelessness? A great question. So she says, 
that, you know, homelessness, it can mean you're living in the streets, you don't have anywhere to go, you're living from house to house, and you don't know when somebody's going to kick you out and when you might end up on the streets. So this feels like her definition of it is, is maybe a little bit different than mine because it's almost like it's like a state of mind the way she describes it. It's huh. just kind of like it's like a moving from place to place. But it's also like there's this like not knowing, right? Yeah, it's just yeah. like this it's everything is temporary. I don't know when like how long this place is gonna last before the next one. So it seems more like a process as the way she's described it. Yeah, like uncertainty and insecurity, like both at the same time. Yeah. Which kind of has echoes of like her experience when she lost her mom in the first place too. I you know, like that both of those those ex- states uncertainty and insecurity compounding each other I just feel like my own stress level going up on her behalf like so I can't imagine like what it was what it was like at that time did you said something like that didn't match your definition like what definition did you have before coming into this story I know you've heard it before so maybe you have to think a little bit farther back but yeah I think like I mean I don't think it's different than that I mean when I think homelessness I think like, you know, you just don't have a place to go. You're living in a homeless shelter. Um, and it's more of just like, you know, how I understand it, which is not from my own experience. So I think the difference there for me is just like, I I never thought about it through the mindset of like what it feels okay, like to yeah. be homeless. And yeah. like what that uncertainty feels like. Yeah. I remember before I started this initiative, like how strongly my association of homelessness was with people living on the streets. Like I just, even like even homeless shelters, I thought of as like, there were places where you'd go get food during the day or maybe a bed for a short period of time. But I never thought about the fact that living on a front, like couch surfing could be a experience of, of homelessness too. Um, and I definitely think you're right that I never would have occupied sort of that, that, that it's an actual like psychological <laughs> I don't know if state is the right word or not, but a condition, a psychological condition that you're experiencing on a continual basis. Yeah. And she even says, so like there's also, I mean, just to build that out even a little bit further. So it's just this constant state of, of kind of like for her, it feels like it's like moving place to place. And so she, she lists out a lot of different places that she moved out. And I just kind of want to get like a timeline going of all okay. of these different yeah, places. Because yeah, yeah. I think it's important to like, So it's like, okay, at first she took custody of their brother, and then she said we had our own place, and that's because of the life insurance money from her mom when she passed away. So they had their own place, and then she went to stay with a friend. Once the friend found out, or once she found out she was pregnant, she says the friend had put her out. Um, And then, so she lived with her mom after she died. So then, oh, so she was giving the friend a lot of money from the life insurance. And she couldn't really, you know, keep that going because there was only, you know, so much there. And then so she was still, she had moved back in with a friend at some point. It's like, this is even like turning me around here. But then it's like she didn't have the money anymore from the life insurance, but then just taking care of the home and like providing food and cleaning, like that wasn't enough to be, you know, to stay with a friend. But then so she was then with her son's father and sister, then her son's <laughs> father's sister moved to a different state. And so she couldn't live there anymore. And so then from there she went to live with her aunt. And then yeah. from there she lived in the homeless shelter. And like, that is just like, I mean, we don't, we don't know like what the timeline is, like, like, like how, how long yeah. for each place, but just like, 
I mean, I, well, we, she, we know that she's six months pregnant, right? So it's like maybe it's just like a few months time that she was with a friend initially. So it just, I mean, that's like so many yeah. different. And was she still in school at that time too? Like so was true, she, yeah. or was she just working to pay the bills? And so had decided like she wasn't going to worry about her high school diploma at that point. Um, yeah. I, it sounds like more like she might have been trying to do the caretaking, so I, I kind of wonder if she could even be going to school at that point. Um, I'm going to just interrupt our conversation briefly to uh, remind people that uh, you're listening to WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. And you're here with me, Allison Schutte, and Willow Walsh. Today on Listen Up, we're discussing one of the stories from our Invisible Project initiative. Um, and if you're interested, you can go to our website, Welcome Project, which is all one word, .valpo.edu, to find more Invisible Project stories. So currently, we're talking about... Um, our storyteller today and how she defines homelessness and like the circumstances of how she ended up homeless. And we're trying to, we're getting to the point of trying to understand, at least I, I would like to know like what to make of her, her aunt thinking that if she pushed her out to live in a homeless shelter, it would get her on her feet faster. Like, how did you, how did you wrestle with that? Or why why do you think the aunt did that? I mean, my sense is that the aunt did that to like like a misguided sense of like motivation, right? It's just like she must think the aunt like, well, it's so good here. You're obviously not motivated to get your own place, like as if motivation is the problem. And then so she's like, well, you know, you're not gonna be my problem anymore. I'm gonna put you in a homeless shelter. And so it's this kind of like, I don't know. And I, I like, to me, this is just about blame. Like even the mm. people who are close to her, it's just like still blaming her for the situation yeah. you know, up until this point. Like the just thing after thing that keeps happening to her. Yeah. You know, like her mother's death, taking care of her brother, you know, trying to find a place to live. It's just like, she's just, she's just trying to keep it all together. But so it's just, but for me, it's like, doesn't feel like the aunt really cares about her just the fact that yeah it's really hard to see the aunt with any empathy <laughs> I mean and I think that it's I think the interesting thing is that she the aunt kind of stands in as like what I hear a lot which is that you know people bring homelessness on themselves and it's an individual's responsibility to pull themselves up by their bootstrap bootstraps and so um I, I find it useful for the storyteller to be able to s help us see like how problematic that is, that she's without moorings, she's without any anchors, she's without that sort of family support that so many of us actually rely on. So to like blame individuals for situations that they find themselves in um, when we ourselves benefit so often from the support systems that we have, I feel like is one of the things that I certainly learned from people telling me their stories about how they became homeless and like how they got out of that situation. Yeah. And I think that's a great point too, because like 
the line that stood out to me in this part the most was, like she says, that was my family who was putting me into yeah. homeless shelters. And, like, literally putting her into homeless shelters, like, with her aunt. But also just this, like, constant, like, as she's moving from place to place, like, to her friends, to, like, her son's dad. It's, like, to her aunt. It's, like, nobody's really, like, you know, taking, you know, enough time. I guess we don't know the situations, but it's just, like, to allow her to stay there and just not really caring that she doesn't I mean so it's yeah. just, it really comes down to the support system like you said that like really has to take the initiative and care enough about her well-being and like to to be able to take her in and not just that as, as a temporary place not just to make her feel like she's not doing enough around the house to deserve it I mean she even says like you know she like the aunt goes around throwing all of her son's stuff yeah. away like I just like I mean I can't even imagine that like the son must be like he must be a baby, right? He must be so young. It's like to throw his stuff away. Yeah, and I'm thinking about, like, because she stresses that, right? I mean, that um, it's his walkers and his swings. Like, you know, those aren't things that you necessarily are going to, you know, like, use again necessarily, but they have all this emotional like value in them you know like this is where he learned to take his first steps and this is um how I like cared for him when he couldn't stop crying you know I'd push him in the swing and so I feel like again because we know family is so important to her that um those kind of memories that she it's almost like she's being robbed of those future connections to her son because the aunt is selling these things that would have so much sort of um, nostalgia in them. I mean, maybe I'm projecting the nostalgia bit, but I'm just thinking like little walker and a little swing, you know, and how I would maybe react if it was me looking through the basement one day and like coming across those things. And then, oh, remember when Jaden was, you know, like two and learning how to walk or whatever. Yeah, no, I definitely think that. And I almost wonder like, if she were in a different circumstance, like if she had her own place and maybe the aunt watched her son sometimes and had some swings and walkers at her house, like, would she have done the same thing? Would she have done the same, like, you know, getting rid of her stuff to, like, make a point? Because it feels like her going into the homeless shelter is kind of making a point right. on her aunt's side. So it's like, I don't think if if she was up to these, like, unmeetable standards of her aunt that she would be in the same predicament. Like, she would have the same sort of, like, blame placed onto her and have, like, her stuff thrown away. Do you think there's any reason to try to empathize with the aunt or the friend who the storyteller tells us, you know, kicks her out without a reason? Are we, I don't know if this is the right word, like responsible to try to understand their point of view because they don't get to tell their side of the story? Or is it just that, you know, some people are just mean? I, I don't know. No, I think it's actually, I think it's super important to understand their point of view, right? Because as we're seeing it from our storyteller's point of view, like, I mean, I think any reasonable person could be like, oh my gosh, screw that friend, screw that aunt. Like, wow, they suck for not like taking care of her. But I think if we flip that and we think about like, okay, what is it? What does it maybe look like to to be in the aunt's mind at this point? This is maybe like, I mean, if we're going to like go all in and empathize, like, I mean, this could be like, Maybe the aunt feels guilty that she's like maybe enabling her to not, yeah. you know, move forward and, you know, she shouldn't like have all of these things that she 
wouldn't be able to take care of if she does need to move into the homeless shelter. Like, this isn't good for her to raise her child in this environment. Like, I don't know. But I think, like, any one of us might be able to find ourselves in that mindset, right? Like, how, where do we cut the support off? Where is the line? And when we try to, you know, say, like, well, the line is, you know, I've had enough. She's not going to live in my house anymore if it's the aunt, you know, and to put her in the homeless shelter. It's like, I think we need to understand, like, from our storyteller, we understand the negative impact, which is going to the homeless shelter. But I also think, like, if we find ourselves in that position to where we're providing support for others, we need to maybe empathize, like, what what the lines that we draw, what impacts those have on other people outside of ourselves. Mm. And so I think, like, you know, it's it's like the aunt is probably able to reason it away. I mean, I wouldn't say that she probably hates her niece at all and probably still loves her even after doing this. So there's some rationalization there that happens. And I, and I think it's important to be mindful of it because as she tells us, you know, it's her family putting into her into homeless shelters. It's her support system that failed her in these times. And so whenever we find ourselves in these positions of being a support system, you know, what we're responsible for. Yeah. I mean, I think I would, um, I would feel more okay about that if it was a story of like the aunt puts her into the homeless shelter, but then like still finds other ways of supporting her or checking in on her at least, you know, like the sense of like selling the stuff and it's not even just giving it away to people who need it. It's selling it, which means she's making money off of it. So that part of it gets a lot harder for me. But I, I do think, like, I'm, I'm wondering about the friend and, like, what it's like to take in um, a young new mom and, and a newborn. And, like, depend, we don't know anything about the stress that the, the friend who's taken her in, like, is under themselves. Like, but there could be these stretching points at which you yourself have nothing more to give. Um, for somebody who is is in so much need themselves, so I don't I don't know. It's it's not a pretty situation, but I I can certainly imagine that I would fail somebody who was in need of help at some point because of my own limitations, um, which is maybe a good reason why we have like nonprofit organizations that can help um, when individuals or families feel so. Uh, it, incapacitated um so let's go ahead and play the final story because that's where we get to hear about how she beats the statistics and the help that she gets from the nonprofit organizations so this story is truly unconditional love i was 19 when i had my son and i just lost my mom and we were homeless we had nobody to help us. It's just so hard to bring a child into that kind of situation, to bring them into a homeless shelter, to have nobody to help you. I don't want him to feel that he can't depend on me. I don't want him to feel that, you know, he has to worry about things like that. I don't want him to feel that it's his fault, or even though he wasn't old enough at the time, but babies can still feel your anxiety. They can still feel your stress. And you don't want them to feel that way. You want them to feel like everything's going to be okay and they don't have to worry because they're children. They shouldn't have to worry about where they're going to sleep at night or what they're going to eat or anything of that sort. When you have a child, that child comes first. 
sometimes he eats, you don't eat. That's just the way it is. Even when you have a job, you only get paid minimum wage, and minimum wage is only $7.25 an hour. And depending on how many hours you get, sometimes your checks are only two or $300 every two weeks. And that is not enough to get an apartment, to feed your child, to buy diapers, to buy clothes, to have transportation. And when you live in Portage, there's no bus transportation to get people back and forth. And most jobs won't even give you 30 or 35 hours a week. Like the Y, they wouldn't let us work over 30 hours a week. And that was only about $200, $300 every two weeks, depending. That's not enough to go out there, put a down payment on an apartment, and pay $600 a month. When we moved into the homeless shelter, Gabriel's Horn, in South Haven, I mean, this homeless shelter was really nice. It was awesome, to be honest with you. You had your own room, had your own little refrigerator in there. Um, the people were really, really nice. They wanted to help you. Um, yes, things could be complicated, having to get along with other people that you don't know and live with these people and, you know, share the kitchen and the bathrooms and the living room. I mean, you had a curfew of 9 o'clock on the weekdays and 10 o'clock on the weekends. You're allowed to have three overnights a month. You could have visitors, but they couldn't go in your room, of course. Kids had to be in bed by 8 o'clock. Um, there was mandatory counseling that you had to do, group counseling and individual counseling. You had chores that you had to do every day before you left the house. Uh, if you didn't come in on time, they would lock you out. Um, uh, and after so many write-ups, they would have to put you out. I think it was five or six write-ups that they would um, say that, you know, it's time for you to go. They helped with transportation. The house mother, when we moved out, she took Jaden to school for two years back and forth and took me to work because I did not have a car. And for two years, she still helped us every single day. She would come from South Haven by his school all the way to Portage, pick us up, take us all the way back to South Haven and take me all the way back to Portage. Every day for two years, she did that. So they were really nice people. They had us fill out an application uh, for housing opportunities. And then we were on the waiting list for about five or six months before we got our apartment. Hanging up pictures on the walls and uh, hanging up his crafts from school and decorating his room and um, making his room feel like it was his own was probably one of the best memories because he was really excited when we started putting stuff into place and it became his own room with all his toys and his pictures that he made. Um, and was able to have friends come over and spend the night and play with his stuff. I think being a mom is amazing. Like, you never know how much you can love somebody until you have a child. There's no love like it. Like, sometimes you love them so much that you just cry. There's no love like having a child. You don't feel that way about anybody else. That is truly unconditional love. So you're listening to WVLP, and this is Allison Schutte and Willa Walsh. Um, you're tuned in to Listen Up, which is a Welcome Project radio production. You want to ask the first question? Let's do it. So I'm wondering, like, how her perspective caring for her son is different or maybe similar to her own experience, like, with her mom. Like, what is the difference there. Like, I'm thinking about, like, she's talking about, like, the anxiety in the beginning of, like, not wanting to put that onto her son. Like, how do we understand her perspective, like, as a mom? Like, maybe different than what she experienced. 
Well, I guess it's a little hard to answer because we don't know that much about her mom's sort of subjective experience of raising her kids. I mean, I can imagine. I have some experience with being around family members with addiction that so like per, sort of like trying to imagine myself into her mom like if I'm struggling with addiction and trying to raise two kids and maybe the I don't know what my relationship is like with my son's dad right like so my boyfriend at the time it sounds like it might not be really strong if he's gonna be walking out on you know the kid later so I, I feel like she was probably under a lot of stress and maybe I don't you know even guilt um, and shame for like if she's struggling to try to get out of her addiction but can't and then I don't know the fear of having cancer finding out you have it and who knows what their health insurance allowed for in terms of care so um, maybe there's some like on par like the in terms of the conditions the the difficult conditions they're both under as as mothers that I could see a similar um uh experiences like between mother and daughter but when she's a mom herself um you know I and it's you know like we're getting to know her through her story so she's the one I feel most connected to and I just see her trying everything she can you know to help her son not to have to experience this you know like it's not his fault that we're in a homeless shelter so how can I protect him from that and that quality of protecting protecting her son I don't again we don't really know from the mom's perspective but I don't hear evidence necessarily that she had done that for her kids so that seems like a really, really strong impulse for this storyteller, that, that desire to protect. Um, and of course, I, you know, it's really uh, powerful at the end to hear that that experience of motherhood ends up being such a, like a source of strength for her. So um, I kind of work that backwards in my mind, even when things were hard for the two of them. I hope that that unconditional love that she always felt for her son was enough strength to kind of push her through these really, really hard times. Did you have something else in mind when you were thinking about the role of mother? Yeah, no, I almost wonder, like, I think you're right. I think we don't know enough about, like, her experience with her mom because we only get to hear her story, like, after her mom had died. And so maybe I wonder if it's more like like wanting something different for her son than she's currently experiencing because like you know currently like she's still like she's like 19 or 20 at this time like when she has her son so it's like she's you know it's just only a year or two after her mom had died and so it's like she's still feeling you know I don't know like vulnerable like she's going into a homeless shelter you know she's moving place to place and so like she doesn't feel that sense of like protection and she doesn't feel like, you know, she can be stress free or be anxiety free or that she doesn't have to worry about, you know, where she's going to sleep at night because those are all worries that she has. But I think you're right. She's just wanting to do her best to like shield her son from also experiencing, you know, everything that she has on her shoulders. I mean, it's kind of similar to what she did with her brother, right? Like she's always thinking about like, what is that person's experience and how can I help them manage that. Um, 
but now she's doing it with you know a toddler instead of a 14 year old who may or may not be any better at <laughs> controlling like their emotions and experiences um what do you make of the fact that she says the homeless shelter is so nice like i don't know how many people would ever anticipate you know this is again like my own sort of bias or prejudices about like experiences of homelessness that a shelter could be nice yeah well i mean i think like when i think about it it's from my own perspective so i'm like well i can go home to my apartment and like that experience of like privacy and just like being alone in a one bedroom you know it's like that i mean that's really nice to me but you know so it's like i so i think like it sounds like there's communal living, like they're sharing spaces together, like sharing kitchens and things and like sharing a house. So I think like, I mean, I think it is different just in general from what I would think about a homeless shelter. But I also just think that, you know, it's, 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 you know, certainly it'd be harder for me to adjust to that, you know, based on my situation. So I think like we, we get to look, we get to know a lot about her situation right before the homeless shelter in terms of like her being like, this is a really awesome place. Yeah. You know, to just, like, have the opportunity to, like, live there. Yeah, and I think that um, the the experience she's having of, like, not being able to get the funds together to get her own apartment beforehand, like, that struggle to, like, just even save enough that you know you're going to be able to maintain an apartment um, must make, like, having that stability and I think it feels to me like she finally gets the support that she wanted from family um you know the way she ends up talking about the house mother who like after she leaves the shelter goes out of her way to continue to help her which I think is an interesting counter example to the aunt um but yeah, so I do think I think that part of what made the homeless shelter nice was the stability, but I think it must have also been that there were people there that were like rooting for her <laughs> or there were supports in place that were like if you take advantage of these, you know, we can actually help. Um and it seems like she hadn't had that experience in so long. Um what did you make of the the rules and regulations of the the homeless shelter. Yeah, actually, that like that kind of like it struck me a little weird. Like I I'd be interested to know like the purpose of them because it does seem a little weird. Like you have a curfew of nine o'clock on the weekdays and ten o'clock on the weekends, and you can only have like a few overnights. And but like you could have visitors, but they couldn't go in your room. So I don't know. That was just kind of interesting to me. So it's like interesting that you're framing it as like stability, which I guess like yeah. that makes sense. Like, you know, structure. you've got yeah, like structure, like when you haven't had that before. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It kind of like rubbed me a little weird. Like I kind of like I want to know like why those, those things were in place. Well, I um, I'm, I'm extrapolating a bit from the fact that there are people who don't get to stay, you know, like. So I wonder if for the sake of the community and having a stable structure, like if you're as an individual not able to meet the community standards or abide by the community standards, then it's like you, you, you might begin to endanger like the ability of others to get on their own feet 
But I would think that would be really hard as someone who's running the homeless shelter. Like when you know what people are going through to put them back out because they can't, you know, sort of meet the sort of the standards that you set for for getting people back sort of on their own. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Like I I think that makes more sense because I didn't think about that like as like in terms of benefiting the community because I can assume like also there's like group counseling too, right? So it's just like it feels very in there sharing a living room and bathrooms and kitchens and things like this. So it's just like maybe it's like even being there is just like a sense of like you're present in this space. Like I can imagine like being in a dorm or something, which is like what it strikes me as being similar to. It's like having somebody roll in at like 1 a.m. <laughs> Doesn't feel like you're all in this together. And I think, yeah, I think it, it, it forwards that, that feeling. Yeah, I wonder if it says something again about this. American, you know, like the individual responsibility. Like it's, it feels like it both like uh, relies on that, but also is, so the homeless shelter is like relying on individuals taking responsibility for themselves by following these guidelines. So in that case, it sounds like it's not that much different than the ant. Um, on the other hand, it actually seems to recognize that actually individuals can't do it on their own and their choices and decisions are always making Im- impacting people around them. And so if you as the homeless shelter, as, as the nonprofit organization want to see them, want to see people succeed, then you understand that there's something beyond individual responsibility. There's actually community responsibility that is necessary for people to succeed. And so um, it's a little bit of a tough love thing, right? But I think it's rooted in the right uh, motivation, this communal responsibility. It's like a recognition of a fundamental truth that nobody does this on their own. So don't go ruining it for everybody either, you know? Like play your part here in this house, making everybody's success possible. I don't know. What do you? What do you? Think yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's right. Like, I think there's even evidence for that. Like, I think like if you would say like, well, there, here's these strict rules, and we're gonna kick you out if you don't follow them, and it, it, it maybe seems harsh, but I think we we see evidence to the contrary, right? Like the house mother is taking, you know, picking her up and taking her to work, picking her son up from ported school and driving her over, you know, driving him over to, to South Haven when they're done, you know. So it's it's like they're, the 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 people there feel seem really invested in their success. And so it feels like, you know, that stability, the, the, the extra rules that are happening, you know, is of benefit, is of recognizing benefit. I think so. Do you see um, a way to talk about the difference between Gabriel's Horn, which was the homeless shelter, and then housing opportunities? Like, what do you understand housing opportunities to be doing for the storyteller? Yeah, so it sounds like, so Gabriel's Horn is the homeless shelter in South Haven, right? So there's, there's like communal living, it feels more of like uh, more shared spaces. And then housing opportunities feels like this application that they filled out and then they were able to get an apartment. Yeah. And so it feels like they, they were able to, to get on their feet enough to, to qualify for this opportunity, which is housing opportunity. So 
I mean, the difference there would be like, you know, sure, she had her own space, like we can assume like in the, the rooms, but it, it went that much further with housing opportunities and being able to have like actually her own space with her son. And like, she says like being able to hang pictures up on the wall yeah. and like hanging his crafts and decorating his room. And I just like, I just, I can't imagine how wonderful that must have felt to like never feel like a place is secure in your own and then finally being able to land because of housing opportunities and being able to, you know, own that space and not worry like, you know, how long is this going to last, but actually like being able to put down some roots, right? To be able yeah. to put things on the wall to, to see when you come home. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting to realize that there might well, I don't know if it has to be this way, but that in our society, or at least here in Porter County, that there's this process like of getting on your feet. If you've found yourself experiencing homelessness, that you might need this temporary shelter, the place where like you're able to start saving a little bit from your part-time work or your minimum wage job. And then, and, and maybe get the counseling that like, I'm assuming for her, like how 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 helpful would that have been to finally like maybe work through some of the trauma she had suffered like i i'm hoping that that's what's happening in that in that therapy settings um and then that prepares you for the um, ability to really then land on your feet and do a little bit more of what a lot of us find pride in like taking care of ourselves and like our our families um so the fact that we have these two nonprofits that help kind of bring someone from trauma to steadiness where they can like really be on their feet again. Um, it makes me sad that there's a, a waiting list of five or six months. I wish that. Yeah. <laughs> that's something that our community talks a lot about in terms of affordable housing. And I wish that we had um, greater opportunity for that. Just one final thought um, with this story. I don't know, like, if you had to understand unconditional love just from this story. How would you, how would you define unconditional love based on this storyteller? We have like a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, she says it's a love like no other, and we know that she truly loves her family because of how much she loved her brother. So this just must be exponentially more than she's ever experienced. Yeah. Is loving her son. So that's it for today. Uh, you've been listening to Welcome Project Radio with uh, Allison Schutte and Willa Walsh. We want to thank our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Organic Juice Cafe at rootsjuicecafe.com. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. Want to hear more Welcome Project stories? You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. 